So today we're looking at 2 Corinthians chapter 5. We'll be reading verses 1 to 10. It says, For we know that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this tent we grow in longing to put on our heavenly dwelling. If indeed by putting it on we may not be found naked. For while we are still in this tent we groan, being burdened, not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed. So that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. He who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. So we are always of good courage. We know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. For we walk not by faith, walk by faith, not by sight. Yes, we are of good courage, and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please Him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. There's a lady by the name of Jess Movold, and she's an elite running coach in New York City. And she wrote an article in Runner's, Runner's World a couple years ago. And in that article, she talked about the attributes of runner that runners need to be successful. There are a number of things she talked about, like self-discipline, uh, a healthy workout plan, uh, being able to to complete your goals and like finish what you want to start. But the most important thing she noticed that you needed to have to be a successful runner was you had to figure out what drives you. Figure out why you're running. Whether that's to be healthy or to meet some goal, you have to figure out what your motivation is. She said this, identifying this unlocks everything that's possible for a runner. That understanding of why you put on your running shoes can be used to hold yourself accountable when you're distracted or discouraged by short-term goals. Whether or not you nail a speed session, those inner passions will persist to drive you. So the most important thing she says that a runner needs is motivation. You've got to figure out what it is that drives you. Motivation is important. Uh, the dictionary defines motivation as the condition of being eager to act or work. Uh, psychologist Dan, Dan Airely puts it this way, motivation is what moves us to feel enthusiastic about what we're doing. It's what moves us to feel enthusiastic about what we're doing. And when we think about the topic of motivation, really what it comes down to is the question, what is it that gets me up in the morning? What is it that gets me up out of bed, that gets me to put my shoes on and head out the door? What is it that drives or motivates me? Psychologists tell us there's a number of different motivations that people have. Uh, I brought out my introductory psychology book from, psycho from an introductory psychology class and looked at some of the most motivations. And the psychology book that I looked at, they had four primary motivations. Number one was kind of obvious, the hunger motivation. You think about the hunger motivation, it's why do I get up in the morning? Because I need to make a living. Uh, I need to have food to provide for my family. I need to have a roof over my head. So uh, I get up in the morning to provide for myself and for my family. Second motivation is sex. The, why do I get up in the morning? To have connection with other people, uh, specifically uh, sexual in intimacy. The third motivation, they call it arousal. It's not a sexual uh, thing. It's a desire to have the brain stimulated to experience all that life has to offer. This can be sought in various ways. Some people seek that kind of brain stimulation by skydiving. Some people by sitting by uh, a gentle uh, um, river. You know, it can be sought in different ways. Some people seek that by sports. 
And so why do I get up in the morning? And that motivation, it's because I want to experience life. I want to experience all that life has to offer. The final motivation is achievement. And the, of course, the, the answer to the question, why do I get up in the morning? It's because I want to accomplish something. I want to do something of significance. And so people with the high achievement motivation, they get up and they, they want to conquer the world. You know, maybe they go to school, graduate from uh, college. Maybe they start a business, start a nonprofit. And so what drives them is that achievement motivation. But the question is, what happens when all of those desires, none of those desires are met? What happens when you think about all those human motivations and those things that, that people want? None of those things are bad things, but what about when all of those desires are being unmet? That's the case with the Apostle Paul. You think about these motivations, you think about first hunger. Well, it says that later in 2 Corinthians that Paul frequently experienced hunger. It's not something that was being met in his life. He frequently went hungry. Think about sex. According to 1 Corinthians 7, he was celibate. Think about the third, arousal, having your brain stimulated, achieving all you want in life. He's plagued with suffering, so much suffering. 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 24 to 28 says this, Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the forty lashes, last one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea. On frequent journeys in danger from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, and toil and hardship through many a sleepless night, and hunger and thirst, often without food, and cold and exposure. And apart from other things, there's a daily pressure on me uh, of my anxiety for all the churches. In addition to all these things, Paul said that he had a thorn in the flesh, something that kind of just stuck with him. God, he prayed to God that God would remove this thorn in the flesh, and yet he still holds on to this thorn of the flesh. So he's not experiencing his best life. He's not living the life that people would want. Then you think about the final motivation, achievement. Of course, the Apostle Paul achieved a lot in his life, but it probably didn't feel like he was achieving very much at times. Some of the churches that he invested in went astray. This church in Corinth specifically was a messed up church. As we looked at 1 Corinthians uh, recently, just there were so many different issues that, that plagued this church. You know, and, and even and now some people are still questioning his authority, and it's just messed up. And he probably had moments where he thought, am I accomplishing anything? And so what do you do when all of those motivations are taken away? When it seems like none of those needs or desires that you have are being fulfilled? That's what Paul answers in this passage. I think it's a question we need to all answer because eventually we get to a point, whether it's we're at 18 or we're 95, we get to a point where these motivations, these earthly motivations, while they're not wrong, get to a point where they just kind of lose their luster where they don't drive us very much anymore. Maybe we have enough to eat. We have enough in the bank account. We have experienced everything we want in life. And what keeps us going in that state? If you take all these motivations off the table, Paul gives us the answer, and he gives us two things that gives him motivation, that causes him to get up in the morning and keep serving the Lord. And the first thing that he tells us uh, that gives us motivation is hope for tomorrow. Paul tells us that the earthly bodies that we inhabit are tents. Now, Paul uh, worked as a tent maker at times, 
And he knew a lot about tents. But the most important thing we need to know about tents is tents are temporary. And tents don't have the amenities of buildings, of course. Now, how many of you have been camping before? Most of us have been camping. And when I'm talking about camping, I'm not talking about the camping that I enjoy, glamping. Like where you go to this place and you call it a cabin, but it's really this nice hotel where you have a nice bed and air conditioning and a stove and a refrigerator. That's not camping. That's a hotel. I'm talking about going to a place, there's a field, you bring a tent, you bring a cooler, there's no electricity, you cook everything over an open fire. That's real camping. It's not something that interests me, but some of you probably are interested by that. But imagine you like to go camping, and you're looking forward to a week of camping. So you go to the, go to the campsite, and you are excited to get started. You unpack your bag, unpack the tent, and you are just excited to be outside. You cook your first meal, and it just goes perfectly. Everything, you can just taste that, that, the, the, the taste of that hickory wood, and it just is awesome. At nighttime, you roast marshmallows around the fire. You go to sleep, and there's a gentle breeze that's going through the tent, and you can hear the crickets kind of chirping in the background, and you're like, this is the place I want to live. Like, this is awesome. And you have another couple days that are awesome. You just enjoy the outdoors. Then you get to the fourth day, and you wake up, and your back is killing you because you've been sleeping on the ground for the last several nights. And then you go fishing. You think you're going to have some bass for dinner, and you don't catch anything. Then you, have, you go to your cooler, and you got steaks that you've been saving for a special occasion, and you look, and it's just a bloody mess of water because it thawed more than you thought it was going to thaw, and they're ruined. The next night, a rainstorm comes in. You wake up, and you are just drenched, soaking wet. And you go outside, and all of the wood is soaked, and it's just a disaster. It's all muddy. You can't start a fire. And you get to a place, whether it's you know day five or six or seven, where you're probably thinking to yourself, I just can't wait to get out of here. I just can't wait to get back to my own bed, to have a refrigerator to put my food in, to be able to cook things in the microwave or on the stove. I just can't wait to get home. Paul David Tripp actually says that that's the purpose of camping, to make us long for home. He puts it this way, I'm persuaded that the whole purpose of camping is to make a person long for home. See, sleeping in a tent becomes burdensome after a while, and you begin to long for or groan for home. And this is often what the trajectory of life is like. Often, not always, but often people start off life with kind of an optimism, a hope that even if you grew up in, in bad circumstance, things could be different. Things can change, and there's so many opportunities and so many different possibilities and maybe that goes well for a while. Maybe you kind of achieve what you want to in life. And maybe you have kind of the American dream of, you know, a, a spouse, two kids, a dog, a rabbit maybe, and a picket fence. And you achieve everything that you want in life, but maybe it's not exactly what you thought it was going to be. Or maybe it is, but then things start to unravel. Maybe you start to have health difficulties. Uh, maybe all of a sudden, everything that you do, it seems like it hurts. Maybe you spend more and more time in and out of doctor's offices. Maybe you start to have relational problems. Maybe you want to be married, but you're single. Or you were married, now you're divorced. Maybe you face financial problems. Maybe you lose your job. 
Maybe your career isn't fulfilling. Maybe you're always struggling to make ends meet. Maybe you start to experience loss. Maybe close friends move away. Maybe close friends or family members pass away. Maybe even, maybe even you lose a spouse. You all get to, we all get to a place, whether we're 18 or whether we're 95, we get to a place where we groan for something more. We realize we're living in tents. We're living in a temporary arrangement, and we long for something more. And that's where Paul is here. He's experienced incredible hardship. He's foregone many of the normal pleasures uh, of life for the sake of the gospel. He's under the constant threat of death, and his spirit groans for more. And the reason that his spirit groans for more and our spirits groan for more is not just because our desires are unmet. It's because we were made for a different place. We were made for a relationship with Christ. And so Paul's heart and our hearts long to be with Christ. And even though we have the Holy Spirit living inside of us, we don't have the relationship with, with God that we were made to live. We were made to live in a close, intimate, face-to-face -face relationship. And so we're not there yet. We have the Holy Spirit inside of us. We have a relationship with him. He's the guarantee or down payment of the fact that Jesus is going to come back and do what he says. But we're not there yet. And so our hearts, our souls groan for something more. That even if we experience the greatest things that we could in this life, there's got to be something more. So that's where Paul is. And that's normal that we would get to that place at some point in our life. And when people who are not believers approach the end of their lives and suffering, there's an incredible sense of despair and hopelessness. I've done many funerals a, as a pastor, and um, I've done some for believers and some for non-believers. And for the people who are not believers, it's just sad and depressing. There's really just no hope that people have. But for those who are believers, it's completely different. That uh, there's incredible hope even in the midst of sadness and death and loss. Paul puts it this way. He says this, yes, we are a good courage and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. Paul says, let's imagine that the alleged worst happens. Let's imagine that I die for the sake of my faith. What's going to happen? I'm going to be with Christ. Now, we've probably, most of us have heard about the Roman Catholic doctrine of purgatory. And the, the doctrine of purgatory says that um, Basically, when you die, you kind of go to this intermediary state uh, where you have to pay for your sins in a certain way uh, to, to kind of get rid of those sins before you can enter into heaven. Now, I don't see that anywhere in Scripture, but I do believe that there is an intermediary state that this, uh, this, this passage talks about. So let's say, you know, our ultimate goal, of course, is resurrection, that our bodies would be resurrected one day, that Christ would make all things new. He'd create a new heaven and a new earth. But let's say you died today. There's not a resurrection today. The resurrection's in the future because life is still going on on this planet. So what happens directly after you die? The scripture says, Paul says, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Now we don't know exactly what that is going to look like, but Paul does say that it's much better than anything we could experience on this planet. It's much better than anything we could imagine because we're with Christ. And so Paul talks about this intermediary state where when we die, we're in the presence of Christ. That's why we say, you know, someone who is a believer, they die, they go to heaven. It's because they go with Christ. 
And then after that, we look forward to the resurrection, when Jesus will raise our mortal body, give us new bodies, uh, where Paul says we won't be unclothed, we will be clothed, and he'll make all things new. Look at what it says in verse 1 again. He says, for we know that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. Again, the contrast here is between the tent that is temporary, that doesn't have the amenities of a home, versus a building that's constructed from, by God that goes on forever. Paul says, God has built a building for you. You're living in a tent now. It's temporary. Let's say the worst happens. You're going to die. You're going to be in the presence of Christ, and God is making all things new. One day he's going to raise your mortal body to new life. He's going to make a new heaven and a new earth. And so as a believer... Paul can hold on to the truth of the gospel. He can hold on to hope because in his mind, the reality is the best is yet to come. I die, I'm with Christ. And after that, the resurrection. And so he gets up every morning and he can say, this is the day the Lord has made. I'm going to rejoice in it because the best is yet to come for me. Before me is Christ in a relationship with him. And after that, the resurrection from the grave. And so he says, I can keep going, I can keep fighting, I can keep suffering for the gospel because I believe that the best is yet to come. So that's the first thing that gets him up in the morning. The hope for the future that the best is yet to come, that before him is Christ and the resurrection. The second thing that gets him up in the morning is the importance of today. It says in verse 10, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Why does the final judgment motivate Paul so much? Final judgment motivates Paul because it's an indication that what we do, do matters. As the Roman Emperor Marcus Aurelius once said, what we do now echoes into eternity. Final judgment means that Everything that we do, whether it's little or small, or, or little or big, whether it seems to have consequences or not, everything we do matters. And because of that, we're going to have to give an account to Christ for what we do. Matthew chapter 12, verse 36, Jesus says that we will all have to give an account for every careless word that we've spoken. Now, this is not simply a test of whether we're going to go to heaven or not. Now, those of us who are believers in Christ, we put our faith in Christ we're going to pass the test. We're going to enter into heaven, not because of our works and righteousness, because of the righteousness of Christ that he's given to us as a free gift. And our works will be in accordance with that, but we will be saved by Christ's blood, by Christ's sacrifice for us. So that, it's not a question of whether or not we're going to be saved in this passage, but some people will receive more rewards than others. Look at what it says in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 13 to 15. Each one's work will become manifest, for the day will disclose it, because it will be revealed by fire. And the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved. We think about the idea of the final judgment. Sometimes what comes to mind some of us maybe think of that and we're like, hmm, that's awesome because so-and-so is going to have to pay what he, for what he or she did. So-and-so is going to really have to answer for God for what they did. And I think that's really the wrong attitude because it says in the text that each one will have to give an account before God, which means that it's an individual judgment. 
each and every one of us. So when we're standing before God, he's not going to ask us what our neighbor did or what our friend did or what our family member or what our spouse did. He's going to ask us, what did you do with what you're given? It's an individual judgment. He's not going to judge us based on, on the curve of how did this person do and how did this person do. It's based upon Christ's perfect righteousness. And so in a sense, it's kind of a frightening prospect that we stand before the presence of the living God and that he would judge us. But we know the God who judges is also the God who is our Father, who loves us. So for those of us who are believers in Christ, maybe we think about the final judgment. Maybe it's a little bit scary to us. So maybe we think to ourselves, well, I've done a lot wrong in my life. I've made a lot of mistakes. Well, I think about it this way. Think of, imagine you're a parent, and uh, your child, son or daughter, does something that was really bad. You know about it. And you don't tell them that you know about it. After some time, your son or daughter comes to you and said, Hey, Mom, Dad, just wanted to tell you what I did. And I want you to know I'm really sorry for it. I don't know why I did it. It's a mistake. It's not going to happen again. How would you respond to that? Would you respond in a condescending, angry way? Would you punish them doubly? Of course not. Because they've come to the realization that they're wrong. I think the same thing is true in the final judgment. When we get to the final judgment, if there's things that we're repentant of, I doubt that Christ will even bring them up. I mean, he says that our sins are as far as the east is from the west. I don't think he's going to bring them up. And if he does, he'd probably be like, hey, remember this, what you did? I'm happy you learned from that. Happy you're not that way anymore. Happy with what I'm making you into being. So if we repent of these things now, I don't think that we'll have to deal with them in that sense in the final judgment. But it should give us motivation that all of life matters. What we do matters. I played in a hockey league last summer, and for the hockey league, it was kind of interesting how they did the playoffs. Of course, most, most times when you have a hockey game, the only thing that matters is if you win the game. But in this particular league, you got points based on how many periods you won. So there was, you'd get one point for each period that you won, and then two points if you won the game. So there's five possible points. And what this meant was that every point in the game mattered. So a team could get up by 10 goals in the first period, and, and in most leagues, that would be it. They're going to win the game most likely. But not here. They'd have to keep playing in the second and third period. I think the same thing is true for us as believers in Christ. We're going to win. It's based upon Christ's work, not our own efforts. We're going to pass the test, but that's not all that matters. There's a second and third period still. And so what we do matters. What we do counts. And this is another thing that keeps Paul going. That even though it seems uh, like... These other motivations have passed away. What he does matters for the kingdom of God, and he's going to have to give an account, a stewardship of what he has done uh, with that time on the earth. And we think about suffering, and specifically a recognition of our own mortality, and it gets to a point where we, it's really a test for our faith. Do we really believe what we say we believe? When all the other things in life are stripped away, when all the other good motivations are stripped away, and there's nothing else left, is that enough for us? Is that enough to keep us going? The hope for the future and the reality of the, uh, of the final judgment. 
Faith is what keeps that motivation going. Scholar George Guthrie puts it this way. But sooner or later, all of us, our theology, our confidence will be put to the test. The burdens of physical existence tend to be clarifying, crystallizing Christian hope of resurrection, bringing it into focus. Our physical trials force us to assess our longings. If we understand the great Christian hope, we long not for a disembodied existence, a less than we are now, form of ghostly fluttering among the clouds. We long for transformation, resurrection life in the new heavens and the new earth. The movie End of the Spear tells a story of five missionaries who went to the Wadoni people uh, in Ecuador in the 1950s. The Wadoni people were known for uh, their great brutality and they wanted to go to them and basically share the gospel with them before it was too late. I mean, they were just so brutal that they were uh, plagued with infighting, uh, revenge killings, and it was just terrible. So one of those missionaries uh, was Nate Saint. And in the movie, uh, The End of the Spear, there is a scene where uh, Nate is about to go to the Wadoni people. And uh, he's right near his house, and outside of his house, there's a landing strip. And he's saying goodbye to his son, and his son looks inside of the airplane, and he sees a gun. His son asks him, well, if they attack you, are you going to fight back? And and Nate Saint looked right in his eyes, and he responded this way. He said, son, we can't shoot the Wadoni. They're not ready for heaven. We are. The question I'd like for us to consider today is, are we ready for heaven? Are we willing to say with the Apostle Paul, for me to live is Christ, to die is gain? If you take away all the other motivations, is it enough to keep us going? Are we driven by the fact that Christ is before us, that when we die, we're going to be in the presence of Christ, and one day he's going to make all things new? Are we living in light of the final judgment, knowing that every moment counts? that we're going to have to give an account for everything we've done on this earth. Closing, what motivates us when all other sources of earthly motivation fade away? Paul says he's motivated by two things, that there's hope for tomorrow, and that today, each day, matters. Let's pray. Lord, we love you. We thank you for your grace. We thank you for what you're doing in our lives. We thank you that we don't have to worry about whether or not we're going to be saved. If we put our faith and trust in you, we know we're going to pass the test because it's not based on our efforts. It's only because of what you've done for us. But help us to recognize the value of each and every moment. Help us to realize that each and every moment matters, that each moment, uh, that one day we're going to have to answer for each thing that we've done in this body. Lord, help us to live with hope, hope of seeing you one day, hope in the fact that one day you're going to make all things new, that you're going to come back to this earth. You're going to make it all new. You're going to reign among us, and you're going to wipe away every tear from our eyes. Help us to never forget that the best is always before us. Lord, we love you. We thank you for your grace. Help us to live in light of it. In Christ's name I pray. Amen.